Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're picking up where we left off last week at verse 10. We'll be looking at four verses, just 10 through 13 this morning. But while you're turning there, I read an article uh, that I shared with many of you already, and I hope you had a chance to read it, but it has to do with the the population crisis. Um, In 1970, Stanford professor Paul Ehrlich published The Population Bomb where he predicted that hundreds of millions of people would starve to death, regardless of any mitigating efforts we might implement. The opening sentence of his book said, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. He went on to blame nearly every social problem upon the fact that we simply have too many people. We're suffering from overcrowd- you know, being overcrowded. It gives numerous anecdotal examples of him visiting you know foreign nations and just having swarms of people all around him his doomsday doomsday prediction was based upon a faulty hypothesis that overpopulation of the planet had reached unrecoverable proportions Ehrlich's book may have been the most influential book of the 20th century and it had devastating results And we could give many of them just looking at China um, as one example. But now, more than half a century later, we find ourselves in nearly the exact opposite problem. And there's no one giving doomsday predictions of the, the human population going extinct anytime soon. But there is such a low, historically low, fertility rates around the globe that is going to have drastic consequences upon the health um, of families and upon the the health of nations. Historically low fertility rates across the globe threaten to begin a reduction in the population. And in fact, some nations are experiencing that already, that their population is decreasing. They're having more deaths in their nation than births. Uh, Kevin DeYoung addressed the problem well in, in the article that he titled The Case for Kids. He says this, though individuals make their choices for many reasons as a species, we are suffering from a profound spiritual sickness, a metaphysical malaise in which children seem a burden on our time and a drag on our pursuit of happiness. Our malady is a lack of faith And nowhere is the disbelief more startling than in countries that once made up Christendom. Quoting from Genesis 26, 4, he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. God promised the delighted Abraham. Today, in the lands of Abraham's offspring, that blessing strikes most as a curse. So I began with all of that. To make the simple point, if Christians cannot be inconvenienced to have children, how will they ever view suffering as a crucial part of their growth in Christ, of their sanctification? The author of Hebrews has been building a steady case for the superiority of Jesus above all things. And that departing from Jesus, he warns repeatedly throughout Hebrews, departing from him would be a grave mistake 
considering what they would be giving up. So to turn away from the pinnacle of special revelation that is found in Christ alone, to turn away from him is unrecoverable. Last week, we considered verses 6 through 9 of chapter 2, and, and it really summar, is summarized in verse 9 there. He makes his case that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while in his humanity in order that he might suffer in their place. Jesus was made human a little while lower than the angels, the heavenly beings, in order that he might suffer. The Son of God entered into this, the rags of humanity for the purpose of suffering in our place. So suffering was necessary in order to make a way for salvation. He'll continue that line of reasoning here as we pick up in verse 10 through 13. And, and I just want to, I think the, the point he's making here is, is, is a correction of a faulty view of suffering. It's a view that probably is prevalent among ourselves. That suffering is something to be avoided. That we should avoid it at all costs. But if the gospel is true, as verse 9 indicates, then that view of suffering is false. And the paradox of the gospel is that we enjoy salvation because our Savior suffered condemnation. That's the main point. I've placed it in your bulletin uh, for you to reflect upon as we make our way through this text. But before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we ask and we expect that as we open your word, you will speak. We ask that you would enable us to hear that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, that you would soften our hearts, that we would be prepared to respond appropriately. Lord, some of us may be convicted, some of us may be challenged and exhorted. Lord, we ask that all of us would be comforted by the truth of the gospel and that the doctrine that is made so clear in this text and this passage would motivate us, Lord, to continue to seek your glory and honor and to enjoy doing so. Lord, we ask that you would be uplifted, that you would be magnified, that our understanding of you would be clarified, and that we would be equipped to rightly worship, to rightly respond for the good of our neighbor and for your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Amen. This is God's holy word. 
first point I want us to consider is, is that Jesus is the founder of our salvation, the founder of our salvation. We'll see this in verse 10. It opens up with this idea of, of for it was fitting. The suffering that Christ endured on the cross, as he just described in verse 9, was fitting for his role as the Redeemer. It was consistent with the covenant of redemption. If you've been in Sunday school class, you know we're working our way through covenant theology, and we took some time to address that covenant of redemption, right? The, this agreement among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where they um, agreed that the, the Son would be sent into this world to live a life of perfection, for perfect obedience to the law of God, and then to die a death that he didn't deserve, in place of sinners who continually break the law of God. To make those who are far off, to bring them near into the family of God. So this agreement, this covenant of redemption is acknowledged here in the sense that it was fitting for him to suffer, meaning it it was according to the plan. It was according to the, the sovereign plan that God had made before any of us existed. The Son of God suffered for the purpose of bringing many sons to glory. And so we'll see this this same founder language. He's the founder of our salvation. We'll see that again in chapter 12, if you want to turn there real quick. Turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 12, or just listen to me as I read it. But Hebrews 12, verse 2. We read, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see that same concept there of suffering in relation, in connection to perfection, the founder of our salvation. So it could also be translated as author or leader, um, chief. This emphasizes the sovereignty and authority of the Son to accomplish the work of salvation. The fact that the one who had all authority found it fitting to suffer implies that there was no other way to save us. He had all authority, and this was the means that he chose, which was to enter into humanity and suffer. There could have been no other option. All other methods and means of salvation are vain. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This was the way that he had to to choose. But in what sense, and I know this is what you're thinking of as you read that first verse, or verse 10, in what sense was he made perfect? I thought he was perfect. How can he be made perfect? The author repeats this as well in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In chapter 7, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We saw that similar connection 
in Hebrews 12, verse 2, between that language of perfection and suffering. So how do we understand this? First of all, we can be clear, this does not mean that he was sinful and that he had in his life to become perfect. And he had overcome his sinfulness and, and reach perfection. That's not what this is saying. That would, in fact, contradict what the author says in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Our Savior has always been without sin. So what it means in using the language of perfection, of being made perfect, is it, it's connected to the plan of salvation, as we've already mentioned. It's connected to his fulfillment, his completion, his accomplishment of that work. And the author will elaborate uh, further on this as, as we'll have many opportunities to come back to this topic. Right? But he brought the plan of redemption to its perfect conclusion by his suffering upon the cross. The perfection of Jesus is presented strategically for this particular audience. Remember, this is a, a group of, of Jewish believers who have converted to Christianity, who are in Rome most likely, who are tempted to, because of their persecution, because of the challenges they face both from the culture and from uh, their, their fellow kinsmen, uh, they are, they're tempted to return to the synagogue, to the Jewish synagogue. And so for this particular audience, he wants to say the perfection of Jesus is presented in contrast to the means of acceptance that came before under the old covenant that required a regular offering year after year on the day of atonement, weekly, Right, on, in the sacrificial offering system that was established. No, Jesus has perfected once for all the work that he accomplished. So the author will elaborate on this when he compares the, the work of Christ as our great high priest with the work of high priests throughout the Old Testament. We'll get there in chapter 4, verses 14, and that'll go to verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10. So again, we'll come back to this. But his, his suffering fully equipped Jesus for his high priestly office, which he, which he holds throughout eternity. So that means that we are saved through suffering. Far from being a setback to his messianic status, suffering was a necessary component of the redemption that Jesus came to accomplish. Had Jesus avoided suffering, like many of us want to do, had he avoided suffering, he wouldn't have been our savior. But because Jesus did suffer, we know that in our suffering, it's one of the mysterious ways in which we enter into fellowship with him. We share in his sufferings, as Paul says in Philippians 3.10. He's the kind of older brother who meets us in our suffering. Now, some of you have older brothers and you think, yeah, no, they didn't meet me there. They were the cause of my suffering. No, but he's a good elder brother, the perfect elder brother, who meets us in our suffering, provides support, the very support that we need to persevere and endure. 
Since Jesus is the author of our salvation, he becomes our only hope. From beginning to end, it can only be found in him. John Calvin points out that God ordinarily brings various trials into our lives so that we learn to live under the cross. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, as Jesus said. What does that mean? Calvin says you you will go through various trials. That's one of the ordinary means by which God equips you, sanctifies you. We'll look at that next. This is how the members of Christ's body are conformed into the image of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8, 29. Listen to what Calvin says specifically. He says, it is indeed a singular consolation, a, a comfort to us calculated to mitigate the bitterness of the cross and in this in this case he's talking about the bitterness of the cross that we bear when the faithful hear that by sorrows and tribulations they are sanctified for glory as christ himself was that through your suffering he is sanctifying you for eternity bringing you and preparing you for glory He goes on to say, hence they see, that is believers, they see a sufficient reason why they should lovingly kiss the cross rather than dread it. That's going to take a radical transformation for many of us to consider suffering a blessing. Since our atonement rests in the one for whom and by whom all things exist, we can have the assurance that our salvation cannot fail. In fact, our salvation is as secure as if we had already been brought to glory. Hear the promise of Proverbs 23, 18. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. So Jesus is not only the founder of our salvation, but he's also the source of our sanctification. That's your second point, the source of our sanctification. We see this in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Well, in the previous verse, Jesus we saw that Jesus, what, what Jesus did, right? He brings many sons to glory. In this verse, we see that he accomplished that, that redeeming work, by making them holy, by sanctifying them. It says, he who sanctifies, even as, as God sanctified Israel from her wicked neighbors, setting her as a nation apart, the priests as well for their religious work, he sanctifies the priests, For their work, Jesus also sanctifies believers as a kingdom of priests. You see that language in Revelation and 1 Peter. So to sanctify literally means to set apart or to make holy. And Jesus sanctifies his brethren by separating them from the pollution of their sin. It is a work that he does in us. That's the first point he wants to be clear on. That he who sanctifies, and it's not a reference to us sanctifying ourselves, it's a reference to Jesus sanctifying us. And then it goes on to say, those who are sanctified, Jesus sets apart believers from the world and then assigns them the priestly work of living sacrificially for others, interceding on behalf of others in prayer. 
That's a priestly kind of work. And then proclaiming the message of reconciliation between God and man. You can look at 2 Corinthians, 1 Peter, 1 John, 1 Timothy to see all of this. So he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That's how the verse concludes. This is interesting because the word source is supplied. It's not actually there in the Greek. It's supplied in our English translation. The Greek simply says that all, those, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one. All are one. This leaves us with two primary interpretations. Either it's pointing back to being one in origin, to having one origin in God, that God brought us into this world, right? That, that God is the, the source from which Jesus receives the authority to sanctify and from which believers re- receive their sanctification. They have a common heavenly father, in other words. That's one interpretation, and, and many scholars take that approach commentators, but, it, but I think the more common one is to view that as a reference to our common humanity, as in the, the one source is Adam, right? the, 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 that we all belong to the same family. And I actually think I agree with that view more readily, because that's sort of, that, that seems to be where he goes with this in the, in the next verse. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, right? So Adam is the beginning of humanity from which both Jesus, the sanctifier, and the sanctified can trace their family lineage. They have a common humanity. Now, either way, both options would emphasize that we belong to the same family as our elder brother, whether it's because we have the same heavenly father or a common humanity. Right? The end result is that we would, we would largely interpret this verse in the same way. But the author points to the humility of Jesus there in not being ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to call sinful humans brothers. And you could add sisters. That we belong to the same family. So, suffering... And the way Jesus did and and then being brought into this family through his sanctifying work, we we can make the connection that suffering itself is sanctifying. And I thought about this just from, a, from another perspective, trying to come at it from a different angle to help you to think through this. The difference between success and failure in, in work and life is oftentimes the ability to persevere beyond repeated failures. Uh, if you read a lot of you know, business books on leadership or success in general, just self-help books, grit is widely recognized as one of the key components for, for achieving success. It's the ability to stick with it a little bit longer than everyone else. Right, what's the difference between you and the person who doesn't get that promotion? Because you stayed at work a little bit longer. Right, because you were willing to suffer a little bit more. It's the ability to stick with it. That means in many cases you must be willing to endure past the breaking point. Think about athletics, those who win the race. They're, they're suffering out of breath longer than the person next to them. They, they suffer a little bit past the breaking point. Or it may mean a willingness to try again after facing another rejection. Think about that in terms of relationships or 
entertainment industry. Or it might look like suffering with joy to bring it home. And Paul encouraged believers in Rome in Romans 5, 3 through 5 with this. He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this doesn't mean that we are to enjoy pain. Like, oh yes, another painful experience is on the horizon. I can't wait. That's not the point. But it is to say that we recognize there is a purpose to every trial we face. That God is doing something in and through us by means of causing us to suffer. So the original audience was tempted to retreat from a, a pattern of living or retreat to a pattern of living that would remove them from their present trials. In other words, it would alleviate much of their present suffering. Surely you can grasp how strong that temptation would have been for them. But relief from suffering cannot be the motivation of the believer. Especially when we see how foundational it is to the gospel message. The cross of suffering which Jesus bore on our behalf not only secured our salvation, but it modeled a motivation for sanctification. Rather than seeking relief from the cross as his prayer in Gethsemane began in Matthew 26, 39, he was ultimately motivated to do the will of the Father, to follow through on the plan of redemption that he had agreed to, and he voluntarily and willingly laid down his life for us. And if you aren't sure what God's will for your life is, you can be assured Paul's language in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that it will involve your sanctification. God's will for your life is your sanctification. Bovink's discussion of sanctification is helpful. I want to read this quote from his systematic theology. Sanctification, he says, is not exhausted by what is done for and in believers. Referencing what he had spent several pages arguing that, that sanctification is a work of God in you and for you. That God is accomplishing that work in you. But then he goes on to clarify here, or qualify that. He says, granted, in the first place, it is a work and gift of God. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. You can see something similar in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So he says, granted, in the first place, it is a work and gift of God, a process in which humans are passive, just as they are in regeneration. We don't contribute to that. We're passive. It's being done to us and for us, of which sanctification is a continuation of regeneration. But then Bavink goes on to say, but based on this work of God in humans, it acquires in the second place, it being a reference to sanctification, acquires in the second place an active meaning. 
and people themselves are called and equipped to sanctify themselves and devote their whole life to God. This is consistent with Romans 12, 1, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, which we just quoted, God's will for you is your sanctification, Hebrews 12, 14, and so forth. So you've got to keep that in mind, this passive and active, and you can think of it in two phases, as he says, or, or in the first place and in the second place. There's, there's, there's two ways of looking at sanctification. Both are biblical and crucial. So our assurance of glory doesn't rest in the degree of our progressive sanctification. That It rests in the finished work of our exalted Savior who's not ashamed to call us brothers. And we have been clothed in his honor passively. Seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.6. We've already been seated there. It's a passive aspect. It's a passive work that God accomplishes on our behalf, in us and for us. Yet, in light of that guaranteed future... We are actively called to live as members of the covenant household. To live in a way that is consistent with who we are. So the author concludes with scripture proofs. And we won't spend a whole lot of time there. There are just a few proofs that, that really give the grounds of our adoption. Verses 12 and 13. So that's your third point. The grounds for our adoption. This theme, really, of adoption began in verse 10, where he said, bringing many sons to glory. And then it is reiterated at the end of verse 11, where Jesus is not ashamed to call those who are sanctified his brothers. Since they both share in the divine source of their ministry, they're more than business partners. They belong to the same family. But as he is done with the previous arguments, he now supports his point from Scripture, and he references Three different passages, really, although verses 13, uh, verse 13 shows two different quotes. It's, it's probably from the same section of Isaiah, um, Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. But the author quotes initially from Psalm 22. And this is another messianic psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise this was a, a prayer, a, a psalm written by David. It was a prayer song. It opens with the same words that Jesus uttered from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So clearly this was a, a psalm that Jesus considered to be fulfilling himself. The psalm goes back and forth between the suffering of the Messiah and then his statements of ongoing trust in the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. And it prophesies of his mockery of his thirst while on the cross, of the piercing of his hands and feet as he's nailed to the cross, the casting of lots over his garments. But then verse 22 marks this transition to thanksgiving. And that's the, the verse that's quoted in verse 22. It's where the anointed one begins to praise God for his rescue, for his deliverance. The, the author of Hebrews goes on to quote a phrase that can be found in several passages, but it, it most likely is coming directly from Isaiah eight seventeen. But in one passage, David uses this kind of language, I will put my trust in him. David 
speaks of placing his trust in the Lord under the threat of a, of a violent death, of experiencing a violent death in 2 Samuel 22. Isaiah, though, proclaims his hope in God despite the fact that he's learned of a coming Assyrian invasion. That's what verse 17 in Isaiah 8 would be referencing. And also a Babylonian captivity in Isaiah 12, verse 2. All of it uses this language of putting, the, uh, putting their trust. It's, it's, it's language of a servant praying to God and trusting in God in the face of suffering, right? In the face of challenge and threat to their livelihood. And then the last quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. He quotes Isaiah 8, 18. Isaiah's children represented God's covenant faithfulness in the past, just as the children the father gave to the son have been brought into the family of God. As Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 6, right, I've kept those and I've lost none of those that you've given me. And so departing from Jesus is not merely returning to a former relationship with God. It's not merely taking a few steps back. It is abandoning the heavenly family into which we've been adopted. That's what this author is trying to get across to this audience. Rather than complicating or com contemplating something so devastating, he encourages them to rest in the fact that Jesus secured our adoption by completing the work of reconciliation and calling us to participate in that work with him. With Christ as our surety, we can confidently trust in him and know that he will not lose any of us, any of those that the Father has given to him. That's the promise in John 10, 28. So let us thank him for that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for this hopeful reminder of what Christ has done and is doing in our lives and how he has began that work of sanctification that he is the founder from beginning to end of our salvation that he is bringing us all of the way home to glory lord we we can get distracted by so many things so many worries, and one of the biggest worries and concerns that we face is the reality of suffering. Maybe we're going through something right now that is causing us to, to just dread waking up. We fear what the day will hold for us. Maybe we worry... And, and we suffer emotionally for loved ones who've made poor decisions. Or maybe we're suffering for our own poor decisions. In each case, Lord, we can recognize that suffering has a purpose. And that you are at work through that suffering. And that it is pointing us to Christ who shares with us 
in our suffering, who comes to us, who aids us and supports us, who upholds us. And so, Lord, we want to turn to him. We want to cast our burdens and our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. Knowing that even now he's interceding for us when we don't even know how to pray, when, when our heart is distant and cold. Lord, we have a, a high priest, a great high priest, who intercedes on our behalf. In fact, he lives to do so. And so, Lord, we can only respond to that with gratitude and a humble admission that we are not worthy to be called brothers and sisters of this great high priest. He has brought us in to the fold. He has brought us into the family, and, and we have received a share in that inheritance. May that motivate us as we leave here and as we face whatever it is that we'll face this week. May we do so with joy. Not because of the pain that it brings, but because that we, we know that through suffering, you're producing in us the character that you call us to possess as your children. And we want to glorify and honor you in all that we do. So prepare us for that suffering and help us to respond in a way that's exemplary to others, that points them to Christ and that gospel message. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing and respond with hymn number 369, Worship Christ the Risen King, hymn number 369.